Sorry, you're listening to the Game Developers Playlist, the podcast from GamesIndustry.biz. I'm your host, Rebecca Valentine. This is episode six of this series. If you've read the site regularly, you might have seen a column we run called Why I Love, in which folks in the games industry write a bit about the games that have inspired their work. This is an audio spinoff of that idea, where I chat with developers and industry figures about the games that shaped them as creators. This week, I'm delighted to welcome narrative director Zalavir Nelson Jr. as our guest. Uh, Zalavir, I knew you first as the absolute mastermind uh, behind a game you're currently developing called An Airport for Aliens, currently run by dogs. But I have quickly found out that you're actually involved in a million other things that I think are real neat. Uh, you worked on Hypnospace Outlaw, for which you were nominated for a number of awards for your writing. Uh, you worked on Skatebird, Can Androids Pray? You were an MCV Rising Star in 2018. Um, and just anytime I see anything that makes me pause, step back and say, weird, but awesome, uh, I can usually safely assume that you're connected to it in some way. Uh, Zalavir, how's it going? I'm doing well. It is Wednesday, and every day that I remember what day it is, I take that as a victory. It's very funny because I think that you are the third or fourth person that I've had guests on this podcast who, when I've asked them how they were, they like made mention of the day of the week that we're recording. And it's it's very <laughs> funny because these don't actually like publish until a couple months after we end up recording, and I never have any idea what day that's going to be. So whenever you're listening to this, I hope that you feel as good as Zalavir feels on a Wednesday. <laughs> It may, may your Wednesdays be uh, brilliant is an ancient game dev proverb, and I'm happy to just continue to take that forward. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, so before we get into the game that has inspired you, I want to know a little bit more about your work. Uh, can you start by telling me how you got your start in video games in the first place? I was a literal child. I learned that game developers get review copies for free. And before I I, I knew about like, institutional uh crunch or prejudice i was like you know what getting free video games sounds like the best thing ever so i pretended to be an adult so i could get review copies to review games did it work it did <laughs> what what were, what were you what were you reviewing it worked for several years uh i went i reviewed everything from smaller indies to like activision games uh so at some point I I am going to have to have an interesting conversation with the PR and I've already had this actually. I'm going to have to have an interesting conversation with the PR people that I uh, secretly knew at 13 and pretend I don't know their names and also their old contact uh, addresses. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> Where were you writing for when you were doing this? Uh, I was writing for my own site. I started a little WordPress blog. Is, are, are we keeping the name a secret? Is it still out there? It's, I'm sure someone could find it. They'd have to really dig. Uh, and if you dig, you, you deserve to find it. It's It, it wasn't great. <laughs> I, I think back with Dread, if someone ever found like, I mean, I didn't do, I didn't do games writing that early on, but I, I think back with Dread, if someone ever found like my old live journal or something like that from back in the day, it's just the bizarre things that I probably wrote on that. May I, su may I suggest a retroactive name for your live journal? Oh, uh, sure. Yeah. Rebecca Valive time. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll keep that in mind if I ever decide to uh, kick around on live journal again. I don't even know if that's still a thing that exists. Um, okay. So you, you started out by reviewing games, but how did you end up kind of migrating into the world of writing stuff for games? 
Writing stuff for games uh, came much later. I was actually about to leave because when you start as a little child and you're surrounded by people who you look up to and who you're like, I hope they don't figure out I'm a kid wearing a professional suit, a very Vincent adult man kind of situation. When you see all those people get burnt out or disappear in one form or another, you just never hear from them again. Uh, It's very sobering. Uh, From an early age, I was dealing with the very practical side of the games industry. So I actually thought that I would leave uh, when I became an adult uh, and put childish things behind me. But before I did that, I decided I would make one game to just finally close the book on that chapter of my uh, very up-to-that-date short life. And when I made that game, uh, which is called All Hail the Spider God, uh, you can still play it. Uh, it's still actually pretty good. Um, they got me. I realized, oh no, I like this and I want to stay in video games, actually. And uh, I haven't managed to escape ever since. How old were you? I think I was 18. May I ask? Yeah. So what? where where did things go from there? So you, you made All Hail the Spider God and then you, you fell in love with it and you, you kept making games. Yeah, uh, I kept making games, and the I've I've now worked on over forty games, I believe, in the past few years, uh, and shipped uh, over half of that. So I'm I'm really happy about that uh, record, and I'm especially happy about the perspective that drove me to work on so many things um, in such a short general proximity. I, I knew early on that I needed to figure out not just how to get my uh, mythical foot in the door, uh, the, the, the opportunity to get into games, but well, I needed to find what would keep me in a medium for 10 years, 20 years, a career. So I thought I wanted to write about games, which is why I started in journalism and then ended up uh, doing things like running a column for PC Gamer for two years uh, about it was called Inside Developments, and it was about game development processes and the simple things in games that we take for granted and how they're all hellscapes, like dialogue systems or the concept of a camera or a light. Um, and then I was I realized I wanted to write four games. Then I realized that multiple things went into a game's narrative, and I appreciated that holistic view of bringing a story together, so I moved into narrative design. And then I realized that I didn't care about touching everything in a game. I just wanted it to ship in a healthy, as healthy and sustainable way as possible for everyone involved making it. Uh, whenever you ship a game, you are freed from your torment for a brief magical moment in time. So uh, please, for the love of God, can we ship? So that led me to multi-class into production and biz dev. And now I direct projects. I write I have a very unique set of skills and things that I do on a daily basis. Um, but the specific form that that takes, I feel at home. I feel like I found the exact place where I was always meant to be. And I'm very thankful to have that. I love having this conversation with you because I remember that we, we had a, a much longer version of this conversation at, oh my God, PAX East this year, right? That's the, when that the, was? The final event of the before times, yes. Was that, that, was the, that was this year, wasn't it? It oh was. 
Oh, and it was just like really rejuvenating and and wonderful because you you love doing this so much. Um, you know, this is a podcast about a, a game that has inspired you and your work, and I want to get to that in a minute. But um, I would I would love to hear too about you. You love this so much. I want to hear about a couple of the things that you're most proud of. Plug your games. Tell tell us what they are. S- set this up for us so that when I start asking you about this game that's inspired you, uh, we can draw lines or maybe not. <laughs> So an airport for aliens currently run by dogs is the thing I can currently talk about. That is uh, one of the big projects that I'm uh, fully directing. Uh, I'm writing for it. I'm, I'm building weird doggy worlds alongside uh, a, a cast of incredible collaborators. It is uh, a open world comedy adventure game about traveling a universe of simulated airports run by stock photo dogs, solving their problems and finding time to spend with the people that you love even when you're both very busy. Uh, We'll see how much that has to do with the game (laughs) of today. Uh, One other interesting thing that I've especially been getting uh, involved in recently is I've been writing comics that people really like uh, under the name Strange Scaffold Comics. Uh, Comics with titles like Sherlock Holmes meets... uh, Sherlock Holmes Hunts the Mothman and Universal Constant and Dark Word. Uh moving in other mediums, especially because I started out in games as a literal kid. Working in other mediums and finding success there, finding interest there, finding uh, my own personal passion there was incredibly freeing uh, because even just being in games normally, you get this sense that you're so incredibly lucky to be here. Don't ask for more. Like this is if you ask for more, this is that's where the shoe drops. Just be happy that you have this. Uh, and I started as because I started as a literal kid. There's also this quiet sense in the back of your brain that maybe I can never be more than this. Maybe if this goes away, there ain't nothing left. Uh, and that's a existentially terrifying hot thought to have ringing around your head. So finally, especially because comics have such a big uh impact on my development process when i got around to reading them uh much later in life than i think most people come into graphic novels and comic books i have found it incredibly powerful to be working in that medium and doing really cool stuff there that's really cool and i i i genuinely hope and but also believe that the the existential dread um will will hopefully not consume you anytime soon because you are making lovely things, um, specifically things that have, have brought me joy and that I have been very excited about. Um, but speaking of existential dread, <laughs> <laughs> um, the game that you wanted to talk about today, and actually, this, so this was really fascinating. So um, a lot of the people that I've reached out to for Game Developers Playlist when I've asked them, you know, talk about a game that's like inspired you and inspired your work, they, they've given me a lot of older games, you know, games that like came out in like the 90s, you know, maybe early 2000s, um, you know, that, so they've been around for a while and, you know, that people have like, you know, launched multiple games, you know, after having played this or it was a game they played as a child or whatever. Uh, you suggested not The Evil Within 1, but The Evil Within 2 uh, which is a very recent title. Uh, it is a mm-hmm. survival horror game developed by Tango Gameworks, published by Bethesda. It was released in 2017 for PS4, Xbox One, and PC. Uh, it's a sequel to 2014's Evil Within. Um, and Evil Within 2 tells a st- the story of the same protagonist, uh, I hope I say his name right, uh, Sebastian Castellanos, uh, who finds out early on in the game that his daughter, who is supposedly dead, may actually still be alive. 
Um, and in order to find her, he descends into like this weird like simulator thing that she's supposedly powering. Um, that's kind of the, where my knowledge ends about Evil Within uh, 2, because I was telling you before we started recording, Zalavir, like I, I have never played Evil Within 2. I was at uh, the, the Bethesda E3 event where they were going like really all out with Evil Within 2, like imagery and, and like stuff. And I, I remember being just like enthralled with the trailer that they showed and, and the visuals, like the, the white. I guess like the white paint or the liquid or something like that and all the mm. photos and things like they had a really really cool photo display and I just I, I can't do scary games I, I just I really really struggle with them I I tried to get through the Dread XP collection and it was really hard for me um, but I, I'm so fascinated by the imagery with Evil Within 2 so I, I'm gonna hand it to you I'll, I'll stop ranting about something I don't know anything about um what did, did you actually play the first Evil Within? I did not Oh my. So so what what got you what what drew you to Evil Within 2 having not played the first? So I had seen some marketing for this game called Evil Within 2. Uh it had the white paint. It looked pretty rad, but I wasn't really paying attention to it. It wasn't within my wheelhouse. I just kind of stay aware of things that are happening in games because uh it turns out if you if you if you stop looking at video games for exactly 10 seconds Everything changes. Uh, also, everything is on fire for some reason. So I I was aware that Evil Within 2 was coming out, but I didn't know anything about it. And I happened to uh, be bored one day flicking through Rock, Paper, Shotgun. And I clicked on an article about the Evil Within 2. Uh, and I learned about the structure that it was using. And it instantly lit every single part of my brain on fire. I was like, I have to play this. Because the way they related uh, The Evil Within 2 is I learned that it was an open world game as opposed to the original, which I thought was more in the general Resident Evil 4 vein. Um, and that it was an open world game built around surprise. So the way that this works in the final game is that you're given a series of open world zones that you journey through. And because this is a survival horror game, you're in a pretty resource uh, low position. You're, you're dealing with scarcity. So you're coming into these zones from a position of scarcity and you need to find more supplies to deal with the genuinely awful stomach churning things around you. Uh, and as you search out this, these places, most of which are completely open. Like you can walk into many of these houses, walk into many of these warehouses and storage rooms and other places uh, that are tight and enclosed, which you'd rather not go inside. You encounter things. Sometimes they're, sometimes they're bespoke narrative scenarios. Sometimes they're uniquely placed or positioned enemies Sometimes it is an upgrade or a piece of story or a addition to this world that causes you to see it in a different way. But dealing with whatever horrible thing confronts you within, for example, this train car hanging off the edge of a abyss for a city floating in the sky uh, underneath a giant eldritch eye that is looking at you at all times, uh, dealing with whatever you find in there leaves you resource low again, which of course encourages you to go back out into the world and experience the next story. And sometimes these stories don't just occur in the place, but in ways I will not spoil, continue to haunt the rest of your playthrough and journey going forward. And 
discovering a game built around making an open world experience feasible, more sustainable, uh, all the things that make my production nerd senses uh, perk up. And that also utilize the inherent tropes of the genre, things that we're familiar with, creepy basements, uh, the haunting jukebox playing in the diner, which is oddly quiet and the door is hanging open and it shouldn't be open. Using the open world format and the concept of freedom to confront you consistently with things that should not be and then daring you to continue to confront those things that should not be even as the back of your mind is screaming don't go through that door is one of the tightest mechanical and contextual feedback loops i have ever seen in video games and it popped up in this sequel to a game i never played to a game i haven't really seen uh to a degree that i haven't really seen matched before or since. I have a major appreciation for older titles and for newer titles. I try to be very broad in the things that I play and the sources that I pull from in terms of inspiration and uh, my creative practice. But hot dang, if in this generation specifically, we are not seeing some of the most incredible structural innovation to how we even approach the concept of play and of flow through a space, uh, that's all happening right now. And it could not have happened without the groundwork laid by previous generations. And often it's going underappreciated or unnoticed entirely because it's in the package of, say, a Call of Duty game. It gets called formulaic even when the things that are happening under the hood, the way you're moving through the space is entirely different. Uh, and it just goes unmissed because it popped up in a Call of Duty game or in a uh, another large AAA shooter or in a open world horror shooter that a lot of people seemed to have uh, missed at the time. Wow. The, the problem with doing this podcast is that everyone always sells me on these games that I have never played before. <laughs> now I want to go play Evil Within. You... You have, I mean, you're a person who plays horror games, right? Like, you you strike me. What I know of you is that you were a person who, prior to Evil Within 2, had played plenty of horror games. I have played horror games and I have an appreciation for them, uh, but they aren't particularly my uh, top genre. What I will say that I have a massive appreciation for is horror films, because most genres in a film such as the rom-com which i also love rom-coms but the thing about rom-coms is that they imply a formula uh if something is a rom-com it needs to usually operate in a certain way or it becomes a cult classic because uh, at the time people were like this isn't a rom-com i don't like this so the way that the evil within two operates um the way that horror operates especially in film that makes me adore the genre is that horror doesn't define content, material, flow, or structure. It is a, uh, it's like white paint. It's something that you mix with something else to create something strange and new, and potentially quite unfamiliar from the foundation. So you have horror romantic comedies you have horror comedies you have horror tragedies and body horror films and horror sci-fi and horror and, and and gothic horror horror 
you add horror to anything, and especially if the people who are handling that material are doing so in a interesting or exciting way, that thing becomes greater than what it originally was. And there's a lot of horror games out there, true, uh, and a lot of them are, are quite good, but few use the multi-tonality and the freedom offered by horror to do genuinely new, interesting things to continue to pull you on different emotional journeys, especially when you stretch that across a 20-hour game instead of a two-hour film. So to see The Evil Within 2 embrace this puzzle box structure where every time you push or prod at a piece of the world, you discover something else. There's another horrible mystery. There's another door beckoning you that you know you shouldn't open, and yet you have to. Uh, there's genuinely nothing like it. The Evil Within 2 helps remind me of why I love horror in the first place. And when you have a game that can do that, then you've got something incredibly special. answers the question I was getting at, which is, again, I'm not, I'm not terribly familiar with the horror genre. I, I struggle, of games, I struggle to play them. Um, but it, it strikes me that there are, there are kind of like two or three ways that most people go about it, right? Like there, there's kind of, as you described, sort of the Resident Evil style of, of making a game. Um, there's, there's, I guess, the sort of focus on jump scares, making things very like streamable in that regard. Um, but you were, you've said all these things about how The Evil Within 2 is very different. And this is a game that came out in 2017. And I, I don't, I don't know that there are many games that came before it that were, that quite did the same thing. And I don't really know that anyone has come out with something, at least not, at least not big that I have, I have heard of that has been quite like The Evil Within 2. Yeah, I, I think in particular, the I, I think one particular thing that's doing that other people are also doing, but uh, seems to not get the notice that I, I was, or the acclaim that I was expecting that these approaches would receive, is when you're playing The Evil Within 2, what you're encountering is essentially something that's deeply modular. At its heart, it is a survival horror game, and it does have its AAA, so you do have all of these bespoke sequences, and it clearly has uh, a significant budget. But The Evil Within 2 is uh, layering on top of that foundation all of these modular systems, encounters, and pieces of the world. What that allows you to do as a game developer is say, hey... Our scope needs to be cut by half because we work in a wild, wild industry. Instead of completely detaching and tearing apart the thing that you've built, you just axe the plan for several modular encounters. Or you remove several pieces without compromising the entire integrity of the whole. It allows you to, if you're making things based off of a live service model, the Evil Within 2 didn't do this, but uh, if you're making things based off of a live service model, what Evil Within 2 could have done is take even an original zone, because you can travel back to zones you've, you've uh, been through before, and fill it with more encounters. Fill that, uh, fill these pocket spaces with more dimensions to go through. 
modular content is a deeply exciting way to see game development because it's the way games are built in the first place. Games are built from increasingly atomized pieces. The more you can inherently go along with that uh, structure, the more freedom and, and flexibility you have in terms of your development process, the the less you are going to deal with uh, projects that you can tell had compromised cores. You had something got ripped out at some point, and uh, it's like one of the horribly defiled abominations of the evil within two with its spine removed. It's just flopping all over the place and you wonder how did it get here? It's because making games is hard. Modular content is a really intriguing way of making this already hard thing just a little bit more reasonable and sensible and uh, adaptable, flexible. I'm using a lot of bulls. Uh, and with that in mind, I, I can't help but really appreciate the evil within too, not just for how it plays and how it's so deeply compelling and so respectful of your time in a world where almost every other game seems to want all of you. Uh, due to their inherent structures, the fact that they take 100 hours to get through uh, if you're dealing with the AAA game of a certain size. The Evil Within 2, I, I also massively appreciate it because it's made in a way that even if this didn't happen during its development process, I'm not too aware of uh, how troubled or not it, it came to, it, its uh, process was in coming to be. The thing that I love about The Evil Within 2 is that it offers a potential future for other developers. You look at that game, you look at its modular structure, you look at how so much of the game is precisely targeted to enable the player to go through its flow in an organic and compelling way from that's surprising from beginning to end. Uh, and you can say, you know what? I can take that into my project, regardless of what you're making or how you're making it. What do you think are the reasons why we are not seeing this this kind of modular structure that you're describing um, more often in more games as time goes on? Like, why was it such a rarity in Evil Within 2? I think a lot of this has to do with creative vision. So when we, often when we conceive of games... What we are thinking of is the grand epic journey, right? Even if the game isn't about a grand or epic journey, we're thinking of uh, this massive thing that needs to be built. And when you make this massive thing that needs to be built, that has a lot of dependencies. So you might have a very story-based action-adventure game, let's say uh, something in the genre, uh, the general genre that Naughty Dog dominates, but to build that thing, even though different pieces of it are coming online at different times, uh, you are dealing with, to bring anything into being within a project like that, you're dealing with roughly a thousand dependencies. Just increasingly minute ways that if the game does not come together, if you do not have the time, the budget, 
or the uh, specific skill sets to bring that thing into being, that entire thing falls apart. So you'll deal with games that have incredibly interesting narrative conceits or pillars at their core. But because the cutscene system is very uh, rigid or formulaic or flat, or because they didn't have a great budget for facial animation, or they had to use their animator's skills in other areas, they can only dedicate so much there. The game isn't seen as a story game. It's seen as either a game with a compromised story or as something that uh, didn't hit the mark at all. Execution is what defines people's ability to understand what you're accomplishing, even if what you're doing is deeply structural and inherent to the core of the project. Your details will define how people approach your core. So uh, a lot of times I see the games that are, are, are produced are built from a perspective of attempting to reach the end goal dream as opposed to um, almost examining how the individual pieces that are being made to reach that individual dream can be used right now to make more cooler stuff. Uh, perhaps there's a lot of projects that start out that way, but eventually due to certain structures and scopes and scales and priorities that gets abandoned. I couldn't tell you why it doesn't happen uh, on a wider industry scale now. Maybe there's a lot of people who don't particularly want to make that game. Uh, yeah, as, as a marginalized developer who's constantly looking not just at making compelling projects, but doing them at a on a budget and basis that is sustainable and feasible, I look at a modular game or modular content paradigm and I think, wow, that allows me to build more things in a, in a healthier and more intriguing way. I get to, uh, for an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, I get to create not just a universe of simulated airports with uh, partially procedurally generated layouts, but I get to make one add new one new element to that system one new element to how these airports come to be and see it transform the way people interact with the entire uh flow of the game as a whole that exponential effect is what modular content offers it's and it's i i can't speak as to how it will affect other people's process but for me especially seeing that be executed elsewhere was almost like uh being seen in a crowd by someone you care about it's it's a game that's nearly made for me and for that reason alone i deeply appreciate that it exists well you've transitioned for me uh, absolutely perfectly into kind of the last thing that I, I really want to dig into, which is, I mean, you were just talking now about how these ideas of, of modular content have manifested in your work in Airport for Aliens, currently run by dogs. Um, I mean, I would love to hear more about, about more about kind of the specifics behind that. I mean, I know games not out yet, so you can't like, you don't want to just spoil it for everybody, but I would love to hear like how, how your experience with Evil Within 2 has shaped, you know, airport, dog airport game and any, any other things you're working on now, like how it's changed uh, your ideas about game development and kind of how you approach things. I think the major thing that's come out of it, and I, I can't speak to uh, 
to how much uh, it influenced one project or another, um, the Evil Within 2 is very different from an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, right? But the the major thing I think I can say that I've taken away from it and from my other uh, research and development experience in these areas is that even as a journalist, I realize that the way people see games is uh, already in bits and pieces. Uh, accidents that happen within a game can influence how you approach the rest of your play journey for hours afterwards. Uh, this actually happened to me recently. I was playing Bloodborne. I was confused by its interface. I didn't realize that you could uh, equip, equip weapons. I thought that was something you had to unlock or something because I went into the inventory menu and I pressed on the weapon I wanted to equip. And when I press use, it says cannot use this. And I was like, okay, I have the stats for it. I don't know what's happening. So I played through the entire first zone of Bloodborne only using my bare hands. Amazing. <laughs> no, no, no staggering. Uh, no, well, basic parrying with my fists, just fighting through Yarnum with my fists, and it entirely changed the way I grappled with that thing. And then I realized, oh, that's because uh, you actually equip things in a totally different inventory than your menu. I felt very silly. The game uh, was substantially different afterwards, but my first experience with Yarnum being this almost adversarial relationship with the developers as I was like, okay, you want me to go through a crucible? I'll go through a crucible. I'm going to fight this giant werewolf man with my fists. Sure. Yeah. Thanks from software. And that experience, which... Uh, is entirely mine, has gone on to fuel the rest of my playthrough. Bloodborne is an incredible game. Please play it. So with that in mind, uh, when I make the games that I'm making now, so much of how I approach development is, how can I make something especially that small that affects the way people see the rest of their playthrough? So in an airport for aliens currently run by dogs, in the very first airport's uh, you emerge from there's a dog you can find there who when you're chatting to them they try to give you a pickup line and they drop a human heart at your feet uh, okay. <laughs> it's like I think it's something like uh, it, it's, it's investigator dog and investigator dog is uh, is investigating a crime and needs to ask you a couple of questions you're like whoa I didn't uh, what, what's the deal with that? And he's like, well, you're a suspect. You see, you stole my heart. And then he drops a human heart at your feet and you have a very awkward conversation about uh, where where this dog has acquired human hearts from uh, before realizing that uh, there's not really a happy answer to this. So you walk away and for the rest of your playthrough, you can go back to this dog and get human hearts and continue to have a very strange, awkward uh, relationship. If someone finds, regardless of where someone finds this dog in this playthrough, this is one piece of content, right? One, the dog, the, the heart had to be modeled, had to write the dog, had to add a cute little fedora on its head, uh, and etc. Because the concept of noir dogs is in our universe. It's, it's a lot to explain. <laughs> but regardless of when you encounter it, as soon as you encounter this dog, especially if you encounter it early your idea of what this universe is and what it can be and how to approach it completely changes. 
in another of our airports, uh, Beachwell, you can in the corner, how you enter it is there's this giant sort of, it's this vaporwave beach planet airport. You uh, emerge on top of a, uh, a floating platform above a giant pool uh, and the airport proper and you can get all your tickets there and then you can jump off of a, a diving board into the pool and explore the rest of the airport. Uh, in the corner of this s- nearly city-sized pool, not city, let's say a city block-sized pool, if you're looking around, you see there's a photo booth there and photo booths usually aren't outside of you know, the photo store where you can get uh, you photographs taken and pick up photographs and also get a passport. Uh, and if you pers- and if you are like, okay, that's weird, and go inside that photo booth, you realize that the picture, usually there's a picture on the outside of photo booths, right? Advertising the services where you can encounter inside. It's completely blacked out. And the photo booth is dark and you are underwater and when you hover over the button, instead of take photograph, it says make pledge. Uh-oh. And if you click on make pledge, suddenly uh, a, a bright red light appears and uh, a human skull appears in uh, the photo booth with you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and this is not a menacing game. This is a deeply, <laughs> this is a, a deeply joyfully enthusiastic and optimistic universe, but... There is no explanation for why a photo booth that can give you an infinite amount, theoretically, of, of human skulls is there. And the ways in which you can use that, that skull are uh, strange and in turn uh, delightful instead of being <laughs> a road down a much darker path. But again, as soon as you pursue that mystery and see that this is possible within the universe, all I did was take our photo booth, edit a few things about it, and give it a unique context within the world. And suddenly this is something that can affect the way people encounter their entire playthrough down to making sure that they always have a skull at all times because they're feeling gothy. They aren't, they aren't going to get rid of their skull. They're, they're, they're a bit gothy. It's cool. And that idea of taking something small and making it, taking the pieces of our worlds and making even the inherent pieces equal far more than the sum of their parts in terms of how each one individually builds on each other to affect the player's total experience. That's everything to me. That is the tightrope walking balance that when you get to the other side, you cheer and it's like magic. And the more that I can do that in my projects and the more I can do that at in reasonable, sustainable, feasible ways, the more games I can make, the more things I can bring into the world with more incredible people. So why don't I do this all the time? And the answer is because before I was ruled by cowardice and I'm not anymore because I played the evil within too. And it broke me of cowardice. If you want to be broken of cowardice, play the evil within too. There you go. That was an incredible note to end on. So I'm just going to let that rest right there. (laughs) That was beautiful. Uh, This has been the Game Developers Playlist. Uh, We'll be coming out with a new episode once a month, which you'll be able to listen to on all good podcasting platforms um, as a part of the GamesIndustry.biz channel. Um, It comes out alongside our weekly news show that happens with the rest of the GamesIndustry.biz team and a second monthly podcast from my colleague James Batchelor called The Five Games Of, where he interviews industry figures about five of their milestone games. 
But once you find us on a good podcasting platform, consider subscribing so it'll let you know whenever another episode appears. And you can and should get your daily dose of news and insight into the world behind games at gamesindustry.biz. Thanks to Julian Villarreal for the music you heard throughout the episode. And thanks so much to Zalavir for joining me today. Zalavir, tell me, where can people find you and your games? You can find me at at W-R-I-T Nelson on Twitter, at Rit Nelson. I apologize in advance for the horrible puns. And uh, if you want to follow my work specifically or support it, patreon.com uh, slash strange scaffold is, where, is uh, how I am live developing and live distributing my games. So you can play in-progress builds of an airport for aliens can run by dogs as they're released, as well as get... Uh, my new comics uh, ahead of time, get uh, behind the scenes features, details on how these things are being made, why they're being made, and uh, how the heck I continue to exist uh, across all of the things that I make. (laughs) Go do that. Go check Valivir out um, on all the places he just said. Um, Go play some good games and have a great week, everyone. Thank you.